This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Human history is a history of pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. And the truth that we should strive for, and actually I think the truth of the gospel, is in the middle. Welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I'm the online managing editor for Christianity Today. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Karen Swallow Pryor. She is an English professor at Liberty University, and she's also the author of Booked and Fierce Convictions. She's also an ERLC research fellow. She is, uh, I think, one of the most fascinating people um, I've talked to in my time doing this podcast. She has a lot of interesting things to say about protest, art, the internet, and just in terms of her living out her calling, it's a pretty varied calling, but it all feels coherent, which I think is interesting. You know, a lot of times you talk to people who do a lot of different things, but it's hard to come up with a uniting thing. But with Karen, you could definitely feel that these things all were related in some way, and I appreciated that. I've been sick. That's why my voice sounds the way it does, and when I'm sick, I watch a ton of Netflix. I think a lot of us do that. <laughs> but one of the things I, I uh, watched was uh, a documentary by Werner Herzog called Lo and Behold. It's a new uh, documentary he came out with about the creation and the impact of the internet. I It made me think about this conversation in particular because he talks about the ways in which the internet um, forces us to see people differently and the way that the internet was created not to engage in relationships but to share information and so it's not about the human being um, and that has implications right when the internet becomes the sort of driving force of our world uh, it's something that uh, Karen talks about as one of her biggest concerns um, the internet in particular and the ways that it's changing uh, human discourse and so uh, definitely worth uh, listening to this interview. I found it incredibly encouraging. One programming note, uh, we're starting a new year of podcasts and this new year will be every other week. So if you're used to weekly podcasts, you'll want to know that. Quick to listen. If you haven't checked that podcast out, uh, quick to listen is our other podcast by Christianity Today. That's still going weekly. Still really great stuff with Morgan and uh, Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. Just search for quick to listen in the iTunes store. I actually wrote an editorial about how the internet changes our relationships um, over in Christianity Today magazine. If you subscribe now, you'll be able to get and read that editorial first before anyone else. Um, Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive but honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. And if you subscribe, you'll get 10 issues, PDF, tablet editions, full web access, and archives dating back to 1956. We've got a special deal for you if you're listening to The Calling, which you are. Uh, just go to orderct.com slash the calling to subscribe. That's orderct.com slash the calling for a special deal on a CT subscription. Here's my interview with Karen Swallow Pryor.
the, we live outside of Lynchburg, but in Central Virginia is the region it's called, and I call it God's country because mm-hmm. it's got the Blue Ridge Mountains, and the sky is the bluest sky I've ever seen, and the sun is shining most of the time, and I just love it. That's awesome. You have this incredible area. You have land. You're like a person who has land. <laughs> well, not like in the old-fashioned sense, like, you know, that we're the landed gentry or anything like that. You know, right. We, You're we, not, you don't have, like, Downton Abbey or something. No, right, right, right. But you have, like, like I have acres. an apartment, a condo that I'm renting from You're someone. Right. Yeah. You have land. We have a few acres, yes. Yeah. A few acres. <laughs> a few acres and no mule. No mule. You ha- how many different animals do you have? Well, I have one horse and I board two horses. So we've got three horses on the property. And I have, I think, seven chickens at last count. We lost one last week. You know, oh, they wow. don't live very long. How long do chickens live? Well, I think three or four years. Do you get attached think- to them? Some more than others. They're they're like people. Some have more personality than others. I watch Survivor, and every season they have a fight about should we kill the chicken? Because like half of them really love the chicken. I did not know this. And don't want to kill it. Oh. Do you ever feel bad about? Do you kill chickens? I don't kill chickens. My chickens are egg laying chickens, not meat chickens. I mean, you could eat one, but I have them for their eggs, and then by the they die rather quickly when they get old. So it's not like you can predict that they're going to die and kill them beforehand. You just go out there one day and... And then you can't eat them if they die on their own. It, you wouldn't want to eat a chicken that already died, I don't think. Okay. No. <laughs> you could if you were on Survivor, I suppose. I'm but. a city boy. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they do, you know, roadkill, I guess. There are some people who eat roadkill, but I'm not one of them. So we've got the chickens and then we've got two dogs. Okay. And a lot of squirrels, a lot. And not, they're not pets, I mean, they're just, you know. If there's a depression, you're set. Yeah. Compared to other people. Compared to you city slickers, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You could be eating the dead chickens off the road. (laughs) I'll be asking for your dead chickens. (laughs) How would you define your calling? I think I was created to teach. So... Everything that I do, obviously, I'm a I'm a an English professor at a university, so I teach. But the writing that I do, the speaking that I do, it's all part of my calling to teach. Yeah. When did you become aware of that? Well, it was really quite accidental, or perhaps I should say providential. Growing up uh, as a little girl, I couldn't wait to go to college. I had all kinds of uh, career choices in mind from being a veterinarian to being a psychiatrist. And the last thing on earth I ever wanted to be was a nurse or a teacher. I majored in English because I love to, to read and I didn't know what I was going to do when I graduated and went to grad school. And when I got to grad school, I realized that most grad students are teaching assistants. So I decided to try my hand at that. And the first semester that I taught as a student in a PhD program in English literature, I discovered what I was created to do. And so what was the first thing you ever taught? The first thing I ever taught was a freshman composition course, whatever that was called. What do you teach now? Now I teach primarily upper level English majors, um, the English novel, 18th century British literature. I teach some a drama class and a Christian literature class. And then I teach a graduate course, a few graduate courses, but primarily one in Christian poetics, which is learning the aesthetics of literature from a Christian perspective. And you teach at Liberty? Yes. So what of the of that range of topics? That's a lot of topics. Yeah. What has like the what's the sweet spot for you? Like what's the thing you're most passionate about? Well, my specialty in um, my PhD program 
was 18th century British literature. So that's really my sweet spot. But it, it was also one of the genres in that period is the is the novel. So I also, I would say the course that I teach that's my sweetest spot, because they're all pretty sweet, is a course called the English Novel, where we read and study 18th and 19th century English novels. One thing that's interesting about you is that you also write a lot, and you write in this world where there's not a lot of like composition English teachers writing, right? So you bring something to that world. What is it that you're hoping to bring into our into sort of the evangelical world that that you think is missing through this? Well, I think I'll answer that sort of in two ways. The, the most specific thing that I want to bring into the evangelical world is a love and appreciation and understanding for literature and the arts in general. And when I was growing up in the evangelical church, the Baptist church, I didn't find that there. And to be honest, I, I, I think I probably would have left that world if I didn't end up at Liberty University and then even beyond that, find a platform because of the ERLC, uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and the Southern Baptist Convention with uh, Russell Moore's leadership in it and others uh, who wanted that voice. But even beyond literature uh, specifically, I think there is a literary way of approaching not just literature, but culture too, culture and the church, a way of analyzing a little bit more deeply, evaluating and interpreting with a broader perspective that comes from reading literature. So I think even if I'm not writing or speaking about literature specifically to the my evangelical audiences, I can bring something about the way we read the world and interact with it from that discipline to the church. What do you think is like being lost in an evangelical world that doesn't embrace these things? Goodness. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a long list. Okay. Um, so I think, for example, there's a, uh, a way of reading the Bible that is less rich. And yeah. of course, as a conservative Baptist teaching at a, you know, a, a fundamentalist or evangelical school, I do take the scripture as authoritative and plenary and, and inspired by God and all those things. And I do interpret it literally, depending on what you mean by that word. In other words, um, there are books in the Bible that are letters and should be read as letters. There are books in the Bible that are uh, history books and should be read as history. And then there are books in the Bible that are prophecy and books that are poetry. And all those different genres have different um, rules of, of interpretation. And so I think we lose some of the richness of the Bible if, for example, we read the Psalms as though it's supposed to be expository preaching. And then we also lose, um, if, if we're not seeing the world in a literary way, by which I mean that there are acts of interpretation and uses of language that are metaphorical going on around us every day. I, th I think that we lose something in the way that we interact with our with our neighbors or we interact with people that are different from us or believe differently from us. We do not have to abandon a single biblical principle or conviction in order to interact with the world and the culture in a way that is uh, more circumspect and uh, and more literary, more understanding of differences in in language and layers of meaning. So I think there's a richness in in our own reading of the biblical text and a richness in interacting with the world that we lose when we don't appreciate 
literature and the arts. Yeah. What are the symptoms of that? An example that I've starting to been to, to notice a lot maybe in the past year or so is just simply um, people taking even our own human language and the way we express things in the in the social world of social media on a very literal and black and white right. way yeah right yeah. i mean you can say something that's clearly supposed to maybe have a hint of irony or sarcasm and of course a lot gets lost and in you know on the internet but there's a context there that should make it clear and there's also you know there's just a richness in our language that every single thing that we say the words that we use have resonances that go beyond just the first definition that you that you might think of and so i i think there's a lot of black and white thinking just in terms of 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 looking at language um so for example i recently reviewed a a a novel that that's a few decades old um but i was reading for the first time and it's it's turned out to be one of my favorite novels ever written and it's written by a a christian but it's not a christian novel and I, i when i was writing this this review for a christian website, I realized I needed, you know, I wanted to quote one of my favorite passages. And I realized that one of the things that it said about the new heaven and the new earth is not biblical and would probably be seen as heretical if it were taken literally. Right. But it's a passage that's supposed to be poetic. So I found myself having to write kind of for two audiences, the audience that would understand this is a poetic metaphorical statement, and then kind of a caveat for those who might think that this is intended literally. That really resonates with me because I was just reading a, a piece that was talking about C.S. Lewis's understanding of Dante's Inferno and how he interpreted it as, what's the word? Allegorical or metaphorical. Anagogical, maybe. Yes, that's the word. Anagogical. Thank you. I knew you'd know it. So he interpreted it that way. But we, I feel like my interpretation of Dante and Inferno, just as a random person, has been sort of a default, well, that's wrong. You know, like he had a really wrong. Right. There are clearly not multiple levels in hell, and all the things he's writing about are extra biblical. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I was right? totally trained to think yes, that way yes. by the church. Yes, yes. So how does the church, like, combat that? I guess combat is a strong word, but how do we solve that problem within the context of the local church? You know, again, of course, I you know we should all become English majors. That's one a- easy solution. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> yes. No, we. I don't. I really, there are a lot of you. I don't want to be English majors. Um, no, we're, <laughs> we're well. We're all gifted differently, and of course, I don't want a world full of English majors. We need some math and and people and some builders and tradesmen and craftsmen and everyone. But we can, I think, perhaps learn from one another, you know, so mm-hmm. we, we can not um, shuttle the arts and literature aside, even if they're not our thing. We can be amateurs as we appreciate and and, and read those things, or we can you know, just learn from others who do. I, I know um, there's a book that came out recently by C. Christopher Smith called Reading for the Common Good, and and he gives sort of a, a program and, and inspiration for churches starting book clubs together. Um, I mean, there are a lot of churches that are doing things beyond Sunday sermons and Bible studies. They're, they're doing, you know, sort of life activities together in life groups or different, uh, based on different interests and so forth. So reading books together is a, is a good thing for the church to do, um, not in place of, of course, worship and teaching of the Bible. A church or a group could do that in a community as sort of, you know, not even a church activity, but just as a, as a neighborhood activity. I think the blogosphere has actually opened up a lot of, of opportunities for Christians to engage more in this kind of thing in a, at a level that's not 
committing one's whole life to 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 an academic discipline, but reviews of books and films even uh, are are so much more widely available. Film is an excellent way to practice the kinds of things that I'm talking about because we can interpret film and we should interpret film in in ways that are very similar to interpreting a book rather than just simply mindlessly consuming, um, actually analyzing, interpreting, and evaluating Mm -hmm. not just the story that's told, but how it's told. And of course, that's only worth doing really with with good films. So we need to be maybe a little bit more critical in our consumption. I mean, there are some films that are meant just for entertainment, but there is a lot out there that requires a little bit more investment than just sort of passive consumption. Go to an art museum and you don't have to understand what's going on to, to just think about it and and receive from it, as C.S. Lewis would say, what you can receive from it. I feel like there's a whole other side to your calling, or maybe not this calling. There's a whole other aspect to your life that I'm aware of that I think a lot of people would be aware of, which is this this focus on human life and dignity. You used to be a pro-life activist, like a really intense one. You've written about that for Christianity Today. Um, You wrote an amazing article that people should look up. That's an example of like, what I've seen as a pattern for you, which and you've written about Hannah Moore and her sort of doing this sort of thing too, is just sort of like being unequivocal about the importance of human life and our, and more importantly than that, our need to defend it. How does that play into that calling, or is that in your in your mind is that ancillary? Is that like a no? That's an excellent question, and I, I guess I would go back to your first question. Then I don't believe that we have just one calling as human being. I mean, because obviously there are, there's the calling that I have as a wife and the calling I have as a daughter and a granddaughter, and those are ongoing callings. That You're the, messing the, up the whole podcast. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the calling that I have as a, as a, as a, as a dog owner sure. um, and a chicken farmer, mini chicken farmer. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, they're not miniature chickens, but <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have very many of them. Uh-huh. Um, I have had a calling since for many years to the pro-life movement. I don't think, it, you know, I, I think the way that I have approached approached that, even though I've used different approaches, I think it's not entirely disconnected from my calling as a teacher. I mean, a lot of what I, you know, when I protested outside abortion clinics, I mean, there were times when I was there to offer help to the women going in. And then there were other times when I would be holding a sign or handing out literature and I, because I, or writing letters to the editor because I really feel compelled to teach the public the truth about human life because they're, you know, because our, our culture is blinded by a lot of lies about that. So, you know, in some ways, that's a, that's a separate calling that God has put on me, but it's not entirely disconnected. I and you think. can see how they come together with the Hannah Moore book, right? Like just, yeah. A, your ability to be able to write it, and B, like your ability to like really be able to read into some of the stuff that she's done and I have to confess that I, I, I really found a kindred spirit in Hannah Moore mm-hmm. um, when I wasn't even looking for one. I mean, I discovered her uh, when I was floundering, trying to find a topic to write my PhD dissertation on, which is, <laughs> you know, a very arduous task. And I accidentally or providentially stumbled across this woman's name in an obscure book about the rise of the English novel. And uh, so I wrote a dissertation on her. Uh, and I, what I wanted to write about and did write about was the single novel that she wrote. And it was a literary dissertation. But in the course of researching that novel and then her life, I discovered this woman who was a best-selling author in 18th century England, uh, who was a poet and a dramatist and was the toast of 
no less than Dr. Samuel Johnson, who uh, who was who epitomized all that 18th century British literature is. And she also, you know, as she grew older in life, became an evangelical Christian and helped William Wilberforce and the slave trade. So here was a woman who was a literary woman, was a was an esteemed writer of her time, and who helped end the slave slave trade, helped teach the poor to read, um, helped bring about countless reforms to late 18th and early 19th century England. And so she's a woman who had many callings that were united, I think, just simply in her place that God had her born into in society. And she's been, you know, become a role model for me. You know, when I think about her and I think about me and, and other people I know who have a strong sense of calling. I think there's a there's a famous quote about by Frederick Buechner about uh, about calling being where your passion and the your deep passion and the world's needs meet. Um, and I love that quote, even though I'm butchering it right now. <laughs> he, he points to two things delving together to form a calling. But I think when I think about that, I think about all the people in the world now and in the past who are slogging away at horrible jobs, um, coal miners in West Virginia, field workers in Africa who are not passionate about their right. jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. But they are doing what they need to do to survive and they're doing it well. That is their calling. So we are, whatever our definition or understanding of calling is, it cannot be limited to the thing I like to do and that's going to bring me a paycheck. Yeah. Because that is the rare exception. And I'm thankful that I am very, very blessed to be part of that exception. But calling has to do with, yes, hopefully our passion, but it also has to do with the way that God created us. Like I said, I, I really believe I was created to teach. And if I had been born in some other time and place, um, I think of my mother who was born over 80 years ago in a very poor, poor family in a very rural, rural area and went to a one-room schoolhouse and never had the chance to receive, you know, to become uh, a teacher. Um, she went to secretarial school. Well, she has spent her whole life teaching Sunday school and teaching children. That is her calling. So she is a teacher, even though she was born in a place that made in time that made that hard. God creates us. So we have our, you know, we have our passion and we have the thing that God created us to do. And then we have the circumstances that he put us in, making us male or female, making us American or, or Canadian or, you know, the way, the place he, 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 puts us, um, that all of those things converge and, and are part of our calling. And it's not just something that we have ultimate control over all the time. Did your mom sort of instill this teaching thing in you, you think? Well, you know, going back to what I said before that I, you know, when I was a little girl, the last thing I wanted to do was to be a nurse or a teacher. I, you know, I, you know, I think as I was <laughs> consciously making those career decisions when I was younger. I just, I did not want to be like my mom, even though I love her. And, and uh, I just wanted to, you know, be my own person. And I look back and I'm like, I got that teaching from my mom. I right. really did. Yeah. You know, and that's, that, that's also part of God's, you know, God chose her to be my mother and uh, had me born into this family. And so that's part of his providence too, over my calling. In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear 
through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com slash equip. I have a weird question about oh, those, those, two, those, it's, those two callings of yours, the, the human life element and then the, the sort of activism element. And then the teacher, English, composition, artful element. One thing that strikes, I feel this tension personally. There's a tension, I think, between activism, activism and art because one is subtle, one is blunt. I'm curious if you feel that tension often and what you do about it. Um, and over the years, how you've kind of dealt with it, if you think there's a place for one by itself, a place for another by itself, or if they should be meshed together in some way. So I'm going to I'm going to start to answer that question by talking a little bit more about my academic specialty, which I mentioned before, which is 18th century British literature. So 18th century British literature is characterized, um, well, it grew out of stability in England after years and years of tumultuous civil wars and horrible things going on, like, you know, Bloody Mary and... <laughs> English civil wars and lots of death and mayhem. And then finally, the stage of stability came about out of which the Church of England grew and literature that was neoclassical in aesthetics and style. And it's a period that's considered, uh, that's defining characteristic is moderation, striving for the middle way because, because there'd been such tumultuous battling between extremes. And so the thing that I love about 18th century literature is that it's, it's, all its its primary value aesthetically and ethically is this striving for moderation between expre- extremes. Even the, the Church of England is, uh, is was considered um, sort of the middle way between the Puritan faction and the Roman Catholic Church. So I think you know, it, it's it's sort of a chicken and egg question. Was I drawn to that period because of what it represents or have I been shaped by that period? Right. And I think it's both because I find myself in almost every situation that seems to be my my uh my the thing that compels me no matter what i'm talking about is trying to find that middle way so trying to balance that extreme between you know between the artistic impulse and um, the activist impulse. I think it's it's not either or; it's both. People often ask me if they if if I if I'm more creative or analytical, and I and I, I you know I really think I'm much more of an analytical thinker than a creative one. But I think I have a little bit of both. I'm ambidextrous. I think there are a lot of things about me, whether it's just the way that God created me, or just how I've cultivated my my the way I think about things and the way that I live. But I'm I think human history is a history of pendulum swings from one extreme to the other and the truth that we should strive for and actually i think the truth of the gospel is in the middle other than the beginning of all of this when you didn't want to become a teacher once you did decide to become a teacher was there ever a time when you uh said i i don't think i was right about that or i'm not sure that's a good idea never just clicked 
It just it you just didn't have a like, hard class. You didn't have hard time oh, sure. prepping and oh sure. And and without naming names, there have probably been a few papers I've graded now and then <laughs> that you know have, you know that have been uh, maybe I've come close to that. Someone there's a saying that says I teach for free. It's the it's the the grading that they pay me for. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but actually, I even enjoy grading papers um, because I I think of grading grading is teaching. If I'm writing good comments on the papers um, and the students are reading them, that you know hopefully they are um that i'm teaching but uh, honestly no i when i say i was created to teach I, I i can't really imagine doing anything else in the the local church context how has the local church supported the work that you do and your calling or callings it was honestly my pastor and the local church years ago that saw my leadership ability before I ever recognized it in myself. Um, it was actually the pastor who married my husband and me, um, lo, these many years ago, who, when the, you know, in the context of the pro-life movement and, and uh, my church was sort of an activist church and my pastor just, and, and, and the local pro-life community was looking for a new spokesperson. At that time, I could not even, I, I had never done public speaking. And I, I if, if I tried to do public speaking, I would generally like, tear up and start to cry because I just couldn't do it. And he came to me and said that they thought that I should be the spokesperson for the group. And I mean, I just thought he was nuts and I had no idea why he would would think that. I mean, looking back now, I can see some some good strategy there. But I that pastor and then other pastors that I came to know through the pro-life movement um, had a faith in me and saw things in me that I never could have seen myself. And I feel like the local church, I think, I feel like there are, these are the people who have made me who I am today. My mother and my father, my husband and the local church. Some people have to reach for like the local church encouragement thing, but for you, it's not a stretch. No, no. I mean, the local church, my, my pastors and other other pastors that I came to know after that, they made me do the things that I, yeah. that I did not think that I could do. And, and they, they saw things in me that I did not see myself. And uh, I would not be who I was, who I am today if it wasn't for the local church. So we talked about your calling. What would you say is your greatest struggle when it comes to living out this calling? The thing that you sort of existentially grapple with. I think I existentially grapple with the internet. (laughs) I can relate to this. (laughs) Or not. I don't know. I'm old enough to remember life before Al Gore invented the internet and also to remember that joke, which some people will not know. I remember that joke. Okay. So, I mean, I grew up on books, reading books and having a long attention span and being able to be immersed into the world of books without being distracted. And... It would be easy for me to say, I could just say I can get off social media. Uh, there are writers and thinkers much wiser than me who have done that, who do that. But I've also, since the beginning, I've always used social media, especially Facebook, as an extension of my classroom. Um, I first got on Facebook when it was just for you know people with college and university email addresses to post articles and continue discussions that started in my classroom. So that's how I started on social media was just using it like a classroom. And as a result of the blogosphere, my writing um, platform has has grown. My audience has grown. And so it's kind of the hand that's fed me. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And it does do a lot of good. But I do miss the days when I could just get lost in a book and not feel an obligation 
you know, a, a rightful ob- obligation or simply a wrongful temptation to constantly be checking the internet. Yeah. And, I, and I know that doesn't sound like a really existential question, but, yeah. but I think it is when you think about, because we are living in a time period right now, I think about this a lot. Um, the age of the book has been about 500 years. Books were not always around. And so the thing that I have devoted my life, I'm living right now in the period where the thing I have devoted my life to that's been around for 500 years is transitioning. I don't, th- I don't think books will disappear, at least not in my lifetime. But still, the world has changed enough that something has come along that is, you know, supplementing or or replacing books to a large degree and, and the way our mind, the way our minds work um, compared to reading books versus reading the internet. And um, I think about it a lot and I, I feel a lot of anguish over it. Yet at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm not trying, you know, I don't want to just completely neglect the age that we live in. I mean, when there are a lot of those same anxieties that were around for a long time when, when print culture developed. Um, but now we're, I'm seeing the transition from print culture to digital culture, and it does create a lot of angst for me. I had a really depressing conversation in the context of my workplace the other day where someone um, was asking me, like, where do we put a, a link to another article that we want people to read? Do we put it, like, down at the bottom of the article and then sort of in the middle or at the top? And I said, you got to put it at the top because no one reads past that. They're going to click on it. They're going to skim it real quick. They might read the intro, but they're going to see it at the top. And I realized, I'm assuming most of our readers aren't reading. They're skimming. Mm-hmm, right. And and in my job, I'm working with that assumption, which means I'm enabling it, right? Right. If I let myself. Right. The grappling with that reality and then whether or not that reality is a good thing is like, uh, kind of terrifying because then you realize like everyone's doing that like everyone in my position and a lot of people aren't grappling with it they're just doing it so that's a bummer it is it is <laughs> and i just read the book i just uh most recently read was the shallows how the internet is changing our brains yeah. and it who's ta- that by yeah you know i can't remember his name but it's an excellent book okay. a very very readable book very engaging writer writing on you know he's citing a lot of scientific studies in a very readable and engaging way mm-hmm. um it's kind of terrifying um yet at the same time he reminds us in that book that in one of plato's dialogues he has a character two characters have a dialogue about writing yeah and um socrates thought that writing in this dialogue um he thought that writing was 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 a was a bad use of technology. It was a tool that was going to hamper the brain by diminishing its ability to to um, use memory. Hmm. So he had the same an- kinds of anxieties over the um, onset of literate culture that we're having in the passing of, you know, of a literate culture into a digital culture. Yeah. So, yeah, there is nothing new under the sun, but it, that doesn't mean it's still interesting and somewhat troubling to live through such a huge seismic transition yeah so that's a fear you have about the culture outside of what you're doing within what you're doing the um and your work what's the sort of the deepest fear that you have that that is part of my own fear of of, of, am i am i using my brain and my skills and my giftings the best way that i can should i be engaged more 
in books the way I always was? Am I using my time wisely on the internet because I do have a wider reach than I ever thought that I would have and I'm engaging with people, but you know, am I am I losing quality in exchange for quantity? So the, so I I really do have these questions about um the stewardship of my skills and my time as I fulfill my calling. Um so I would say that is a real source of of angst for me in in my calling. Then in terms of my, you know, my classroom teaching, I mean, I face some of those same questions because my students are being affected by these changes that we've talked about. And we're constantly being pressured at my university to use technology. My university is really, I think, probably on the cutting edge of, of technology use in the classroom um, in the nation, if not the world. Uh, that's no big secret. We're under uh, some pressure to use the resources the university has expended on technology <laughs> in our classrooms. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and not a lot of personal pressure or anything, but there's some pressure there. And I mean, I have a, you know, I have I fall short of a technology ban, but I really, I encourage my students to just come with books and take notes by hand unless they have some really good reason not to. I think that's the best thing that they can do and that I can do for them, but I'm not positive. I, I, you know, sometimes I just think, am I just being, am I like the stereotypical professor from a hundred years ago who was, you know, reusing his yellowed lecture notes year after year? Uh -huh. am, I, am I be, am I that, have I become that guy? It just occurred to me that we are bizarro world opposites of each other. So you're like books, literary, and I'm like online internet guy. Mm -hmm. And then you're like teacher, who uses like the overhead projector at the most, right? And then oh, I just recently threw out my overhead projector slides because because Liberty's they stopped supplying them. The, they stopped so supplying the overheads. I was gonna say like in my last job, I was classroom technology manager, and I was like the guy that was like, oh my gosh, when are they gonna stop using yeah. the overhead Overheads. projector? Yeah, please. Yeah. So that's like a weird. We're like arch nemeses. Yeah, we should yeah. really dislike each other. We should, but. Okay, we'll fight after right. this. Um, <laughs> one of the last question I have for you, actually. If you could step into a time machine, go back in time, step out of that time machine at any given point that you would like, and talk to yourself, what would you tell her? Okay, I would, I think I would choose my 20 or 21-year-old self, and I would tell that self to be more patient and to be less materialistic and to be less worried about material things and buying the house and having the picket fence and those things and um, being the writer and all those things. Because, um, you know, I think for if we work hard, not for everyone, but I mean, the, the, if we strive for the things that we want and God wills it, they will come. But I think we can be less anxious about it and um, and be more patient with ourselves and, and be more patient with life, too. And, um, you know, in, in God's economy of time, he's it's things are working, always working towards redemption. Um, that doesn't mean every redemptive act that we need will happen in our lifetime. But I think generally time does bring the redemption that we're looking for. What more specifically were you worried about impatient for? You know, I had bought into um, sort of the materialistic idea of version of the American dream. Yeah. 
And so um, as a young married couple, you know, we struggled financially. And I think I just kind of wanted and was anxious about having the house, having the dog. I mean, I, we got our first dog before we should have had a dog, you know, in an apartment and just, just things like that. The vision that I had for for the life that I wanted. I mean, we, we eventually got it. I mean, I always wanted to live in the country with horses and dogs and, and we do. And I, even when that happened, I felt like it took us longer than I thought it should have. You know, I look back at how foolish was that because, you know, we still have a lot of life ahead of us. And so I just, I just, I think in my generation, I'm, I'm a member of generation X and I think that was part of the curse of our generation. I think the millennials, you millennials now, I mean, you, I don't think you even, you live in a world where you probably, most of you probably don't even really think those things will be possible for you. Well, we're realizing that very quickly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. much more quickly than I did. And, you know, and so that's kind of a different problem. But I think, you know, growing up when I did in Generation X, and I mean, I think I, I held too tightly to those um, to those sort of external markers of, of, of success. And, and I don't mean necessarily just economic accomplishment, but just personal accomplishment, just doing better than the generation, my, the previous generation and being more in a hurry than I needed to be. Um, and the way that God worked it out, I actually, um, had to get to a place. I didn't, it wasn't until, until I was at a place of peace that, that we would ever own our first house that we, you know, that we bought our first house. And that turned out to be a real economic nightmare, but that's another, that's another story. So yeah, those, those, the things that we think are so important often turn out not to be the ones that are the most important. And it takes time to find that out. You've been listening to The Calling. Karen Swallow Pryor is an English professor at Liberty University and the author of Booked and Fierce Convictions. You can follow her on Twitter at KS Pryor. That's KS Pryor. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.